on in. We're about to begin our Sunday school time. Okay, well, we're about to begin our, uh, our new Sunday school topic of uh, Colossians 1, so if you'll be seated. We do have some handouts up here. If uh, you would uh, see my lovely wife here, she will be helping pass some, uh, some handouts for that, and then we'll leave the rest of them in the back for any of those that uh, come in a little bit later. So anyway, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be uh, beginning a four-week study of an overview of kind of each of the chapters of Colossians. And before we actually get into a study of chapter one, I'm going to start us with a little bit of, a, uh, of an overview of, uh, of the whole book of Colossians. So before we begin, uh, let's uh, just open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for the gift of your love and care. Lord, for how you fill us and strengthen us and empower us uh, with, your, with your might, with your mercy, with your love. And we just ask that you would open our, our minds and eyes and hearts to hear the message and give us the strength to apply as we learn more about your truth and your hope. So, Lord, be with us this morning. Prepare our hearts to, to hear and to, uh, to follow and worship you. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Your handouts there actually show that there are a couple of questions that we're going to be going over. Just because of the size of this, too, I think we're going to chunk this down a little bit so we don't read through the entire chapter and then try to do questions at the end when you might forget about all of the things that we've, that we've been covering. But uh, again, as, as a starting point, I just want to give a little bit of the background of Colossians and uh, before we even read any of the passage, I don't know how many of you have had the chance to read Colossians prior to our Sunday school here, but one of the main things I want you to notice as we read through it today, and as you read through it again, just is the centrality of Christ that comes out in the book of Colossians. This is probably one of the most thoroughly Christ-centered books of the whole Bible. When you, when you look through this, if you look at the actual the length of the book of Colossians, just four chapters, and how much the emphasis is on the centrality of Christ. It really just, it really is stunning just how like concentrated this is as far as a book that talks about this. Uh, and it, even in just the first chapter, I was counting just really quickly, I was like, the first chapter uses the name of Christ like 10 times, and that doesn't even include the pronouns. And that's just in the first chapter. But that's how saturated this, this book is uh, on uh, the emphasis on Christ in here. And obviously in our regular uh, Sunday sermon series, we're going through the book of Romans, which obviously is, uh, Christ is central to all that as well. But I mean, while Romans covers sort of the whole waterfront as far as theology, it's one of the most you know, comprehensive books as, as far as theology, this is the, the um, is much more, this kind of complements and supplements this because it just does a deep dive in just a few of, a few of these areas as opposed to the whole waterfront on that. So it really is a great complement and supplement. I, I hope you think and, and see this study in Colossians as, as a complement and a supplement to uh, the book of Romans that we're going through in our regular Sunday series because it really is. And there's always, I mean, all scripture has the thread that goes through, Old to New Testament, 
but it's just nice to see something so clearly that where you see the threads coming out in, okay, here's what we study in Sunday school, here's what we study in, in the regular service as well. But I, I hopefully that'll pop for you a little bit as we go through some of this. Just to give you one quick example of, of how there's the, the similarities there, how they, they kind of complement some of that and supplement some of that, is the hope of glory. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, we went through in Romans 5.1 when Nick was preaching about the hope of glory. Well, um, that's going to come up in chapter 1 of Colossians as well. It, just a, a really important theme that we need to have reemphasized and, and, and hopefully remember more and have it reinforced that theme in our mind, and I hope, again, this, this serves as a good reminder for reinforcement of those themes. So, first of all, uh, Colossians was written, just to give you a quick background, Colossians was written about 30 years after uh, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the time of this writing is about 30 years. So it, just in your mind, just realize, okay, there's been a few decades between Christ's ascension and now this book being written to a group of believers. So it hopefully gives you a little bit of an idea what, what that might look like in your mind as far as the, uh, the, the background. And it's a very rich book that not only covers the, the deity of Christ, but the supremacy. I talked about the centrality, but I mean the deity of Christ is really emphasized here uh, and very much the supremacy of Christ in all things. Uh, but also, th it's got the themes of reconciliation, redemption, election, forgiveness, and the function and nature of the church as well. So uh, all of those things are covered uh, as topics and themes in the book of Colossians. And to give you a little bit of background on the, the environment at Colossae there, uh, the church at Colossae had a mixed population, so it was both there were a lot of Jews and Gentiles in the area, so it was both. It was a mixed population of, of both Jews and Gentiles. And as a newly formed church, they had to combat some, some bad doctrine and ideas that were coming into it. And Paul addresses this in the letter. And he, first of all, praises, and, but then he also warns. There's a lot of warning in, in the book, as you'll see, especially in the next following chapters of 2 and 3, some of the warnings about these false teachings and doctrines that can be coming into the church. And he addresses this. Uh, while he's doing praising and encouraging and exhorting of the believers to stand firm in their faith and reject all these false doctrines and to live for Christ. Remember, too, that this is one of the, the letters that Paul wrote, and in this case with the help of Timothy, but this is one of those letters that he wrote from prison. So, so let me just ask you, <laughs> as a starting question, what, what difference does it make? And by the way, if we have mic runners or anybody that can, can help out with uh, mic running today uh, for Q&A. Okay. But what difference does it make? Why might it be important to consider that Paul, when he was writing this letter of encouragement and warning to the uh, Colossians, why is it important to, to remember that he was writing it from prison. What, what difference or impact might that have practically for all of us? Why, why would it matter as where and, and when the circumstances under which... And I didn't give her any notes on this, by the way. So <laughs> <laughs> um, you said circumstances. Paul didn't use his own circumstances as an excuse to not do the Lord's work. Yes. Say, well, I can't do it. I'm in jail. Anything else? 
thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that's, that's the main part of it. Oh, go ahead, Joe, in the back there. Yeah, I think it just goes to show when you have <clears throat> a real authentic conviction and relationship with the Lord, you can encourage folks even from within prison. Amen. Yeah. So I, I, I hope that just as a starting point, that's why I'm going to start this to make us remember that our brother Paul, <laughs> in, in a circumstance, and it's not like our current prisons where they have, you know, wet... <laughs> the web and, and TVs and gyms and everything else. I mean, he was in a dungeon, okay? But he was able to encourage regardless of the circumstance. And he was able to have hope regardless of the circumstance that was going on around. I hope if you, even if you just take away that one little nugget that it'll help you through this week as you're going through challenges and trials, remembering that our circumstances don't have to li limit our ability to minister to others, okay? Don't let... Don't let your circumstances be a limitation for our ability to minister to others. Finishing up just on a little bit of the background here. I mean, Colossae was a, a city in what would now we would call the modern uh, nation of Turkey. So Colossae was a, a, a city in Turkey. It's near Laodicea. Uh, you probably remember that church and Hierapolis. Um, but this church was not founded by Paul. This was not one of the, Paul's missionary journey things that he did and founded a church. This, this church was actually uh, apparently a, a started by Epaphras, who he's going to mention here as, as we read through this. So this was studied by a, a, a Epaphras, who'd come to faith through Paul's teaching. So uh, some earlier seeds, so again, just to paint the big picture, some of the earlier seeds from ministry are now starting to take root and, and those things are starting to take root and, and bear, bear other seeds that are now starting to, to, to pop up in other places. So here, Epaphras, a student of Paul, has planted another church and now here's, here's, here's the gospel spreading. The orchard of, the orchard of, of Christ is, is spreading here uh, throughout the region. And as I mentioned, since chapter one is one of the longest of the four chapters, I'm, I'm going to break this up in the reading so we can just do it in, in a few chunks and if we, we can remember and, and you can remember what we just read as I summarize and then we have some discussions on each, on each chunk here. So first of all, let me just read, if you were following your Bibles from uh, verses 1 through 12 in chapter 1, I'll read this part of Colossians here. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, so the two of them are writing, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. As it also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit and so from the day we heard we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding 
so as to walk in a worthy, in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. So that's a nice big chunk, but it just kind of begins with, you know, obviously the greeting and gratitude and prayer and praise to Christ. Uh, first, you know, Paul is offering very fond greetings and blessings to this Colossian church, and he tells them that he's uh, an apostle, which another word for that, by the way, is uh, ambassador. If you want to think of, uh, apostle isn't a word that we use very often, but ambassador is. An ambassador is a, a word that we use more day to day and kind of understand what the role of an ambassador is one being sent on to represent a particular country or a sovereign nation or something like that. So if you think of Paul, he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm an apostle, uh, I'm an ambassador, if that helps you keep that in your mind, I'm an ambassador of, of the Lord. Now verse three expresses his gratitude, and, and let's pause and discuss that, <laughs> that here. This is really important. We just read this together, hopefully you've still got that in front of you there. Why? is Paul so thankful for the Colossians? Anybody? Where, where, why is Paul so thankful for these Colossian believers that he's heard about? Up over here. Um, yeah. Yes, faith in Christ and love of the saints. That's, that's the big thing there. And loving one another is a fruit I mean, we see that again and again. I mean, Galatians 5, most people, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. Okay, that is a fruit, is that love. And, and, and First John talks about that as well, about love. It, it's really a hallmark of Christianity, that they will know you, they'll know we're Christians by our love for one another, first and foremost, right? So he's praising them for that. That's, that's a huge thing. It's, it's reached him. He's, he's in a jail many, 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 many miles away. And he is hearing of the love and faith of this, uh, these other believers. And even in his dark circumstances, you understand what a blessing that is. And, and that's the interconnectedness of the church, right? Uh, because all believers are linked together in one single faith with Jesus Christ. When we hear and see of the faith being worked out in the lives of others, doesn't that encourage you? When you see a brother or sister, whether they're missionaries or just, uh, you know, one of your faithful Christian brothers or sisters that's had some success sharing the truth of the gospel with somebody else, doesn't that encourage you in your own faith? This is a big deal. So we need to remember that, why that's so important, uh, that the faith in, in, in Christ and the love for the saints and loving one another is so important. Then he goes on from there in verses 6 through 8, he points out the blessing of fellowship of all believers. And you've probably heard me before talk about one of the nice things about when we worship together on, at this day of the week, I don't know how often you guys are encouraged by the fact that, you know what, there are other churches not only in this town, not only in this state, not only in this country, but all over the world that are doing the same thing. They're taking one day out of the week to focus and remember to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That our, our fellowship is beyond just this, our, our little room here. 
our fellowship is with the whole body of Christ. And that's a, what a blessing that is to re, be, be reminded of that. And that fellowship of all believers across the world, and Paul had alluded to that as well about taking root and it's, it's growing everywhere. Because Paul didn't start this church, as I mentioned earlier, but he knew the faithful brother that had started it and he commended him as a faithful minister. So what, what we just read, he just talked about Epaphras being a faithful minister. So here's another co-laborer and he's saying, hey, you guys, what a blessing you guys have in having Epaphras help lead your, your body there in, in, in Colossae. Because he knows he's a faithful minister and he's going to share the truth of the word. So he's, he's rejoicing in that and uh, thinking about the worship that we have and following Christ all over the world. Then when you get into verse 9, Paul then goes on uh, to look at, uh, to let them know that he's regularly praying for them. So what's his prayer? Okay, we, we just read this together, and you've got, most of you got your Bibles or your phones out, and you're looking at this right now. What is his prayer in your own words? What is it, what is it he's asking for? What is his prayer for this, this church in Colossae? How, how, would you, how would you describe his prayer for the church? Go ahead, anybody? Paul comes to the point where he, he realizes that the real, the genuine faith of the believers is something that he's hoping that they'll increase in their immaturity. Mm -hmm. And I see that in Ephesians 2. Ephesians is yeah. almost identical to yeah. where, and you'll go to Colossians 2, 6, but it's really the, the fruit bearing as a result of maturity. And so that's, that's what he's really praying for, the, the knowledge, to be filled with knowledge and understanding. Mm -hmm. Anybody else want to add anything to that? Yeah, filled with the knowledge. He's already commended and saying, you guys are on the right path. And now he just wants to see them fulfilled. And as, as Brother Derek said, coming to maturity in the faith. You guys are on the right track. And my prayer is now that you're going to just keep, keep climbing the mountain. You're going you're gonna to keep going forward, forging ahead, and, and continue to grow in the depth of your understanding and the knowledge and the joy that comes in knowing Jesus Christ. He wants to, he's, so that's his prayer for them. He's not going to, okay, you guys are, you're, you're saved, you're all good, have a, have a good life. <laughs> he wants them to continue to, to, to learn and to grow. Uh, and, then, and then comes the purpose. There's a reason for doing this. There's a purpose, and the purpose is so that they can walk worthy. As Brother Derek just alluded to, Ephesians says the same thing, and that was one of our favorite T-shirts we had for a long time, <laughs> Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the calling you're called. Uh, but that was, but it's the, same, it's the same message. There's a reason why he's praying that you'll grow so that all my brothers and sisters in the Lord can now continue to grow and bring more glory to God by the way that they are walking. Because that, again, if we're, we're following faithfully in the Lord, that's going to bring us, that's bringing God glory. We're not doing it so, hey, look at me. Look what I'm doing. We're wor walking worthy for the purpose of glorifying God. And that's what he's calling us to do. Walk worthy. And this isn't just about head knowledge for hearers, but it's a call to action to be doers. 
Uh, and this theme's going to come up again in Colossians about hearing the truth and applying it, or to know the truth and combat error next week, especially in, in chapter two, you know, about hearing the truth and knowing how to combat error. You know, knowing what to be, having a firm foundation so that you can then can combat that error that's going to be coming at you from these different, different camps, knowing what that is. So knowledge leads to action that pleases the Lord. So Paul is praying for growth and sanctification so they can bear good fruit. And we mentioned that to grow in maturity. And when we're, we're devoted to the Lord, he will empower us supernaturally to do things well beyond what we, can, what we think we can do. Just like Ephesians 3.20, it says, it, like in Ephesians, I'm glad you brought up Ephesians because I, I couldn't help but go back there when I was thinking about the, some of the things in Colossians. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So the same thing here in verses 11 and 12 in, in Colossians. You know, Paul's, it showed Paul's prayer list for the believers to be strengthened with the power and the might to patiently endure with joy and gratitude. Is that an easy thing to do? To patiently endure with joy and gratitude when we're going, going through some difficult challenges? Brother Dan and I, we were before prayer time, we were talking about that a little bit this morning. You know, God brings these circumstances into our lives for a reason. There's a purpose for them all. We don't always understand the reason behind all of that. But we know and we trust in God's purpose in all of this. And when these things do come, which we're promised again and again in the Bible that they will come, he's going to empower us supernaturally when we go to him to overcome these. And that's the, that's the admonition here. That they will be strengthened with the power of might to patiently endure, endure with joy and gratitude. I, I, I know some people, sometimes when, when people think about uh, count it all joy, they think the only place in the Bible that's, okay, well, James, you know, that's kind of an odd book, you know, and James talks about count it all joy when you're going through various trials. Here's another example of the same, same message. Let's go back even further. Go back to the Old Testament. <laughs> Did Joseph had, had, had to count it all joy when his brothers sold him into slavery? Years later, he's able to recount to them, yeah, that was not a good thing you did. But you know what? I see God's hand in why he allowed all of these difficult circumstances to happen. God's picture and God's view is so much bigger than ours. And we need to remember that and, and not focus just on the immediate circumstances. He, he's bigger than all of us. He understands there's a reason and a purpose for all of that. And so all believers are going to encounter trials. So he's praying for their spiritual empowerment during trials. Not that they won't have any trials but through trials. I hope you get that distinction because it's going to hit everybody. Um, I mean, suffering is certain. Uh, misery is optional. I've heard that said a lot of times, right? But we have to determine up front. You know, the Bible's promises there will be suffering, but are you going to, are you going to make your, you know, your life, about, your existence about being in misery, or are you going to understand that God's got a purpose in all of this thing? Well, now he turns the corner and he starts um, talking about the inheritance in the light of God's kingdom at the end of verse 12. So we're going to pick up and start reading in verse 13 where he goes into more detail about the light, specifically Jesus, who is the light. So in verse 13 it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of or over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So here it is, folks. Here's where we get to see Christ shining through. This, I, I hope you, this, this, is, this is real. the real rubber meets the road stuff. Christ is shining through, and it, hopefully you can see this is the focal point of not only this chapter and, and the book, this is the focal point of Christianity. This is the focal point of our faith, is who Christ is and what, and wh what he's done, his character, what he's accomplished. Uh, just the power of Christ is, is just pops off the pages of there. We get to see Christ shining through this and the Colossian believers and all believers throughout history have been spiritually relocated is basically what this is saying. We've been relocated into a new kingdom of light because we're now in Christ. I mean, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, therefore, <laughs> anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. We're new creatures. We were once working in darkness and walking in sin, and now we have been brought out of this dark dungeon, this one place of darkness and sin, into the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That, that, that's a relocation, folks. That, that, we're, we're put into a completely different kingdom. We're not groping around in the dark trying to make sense out of all these awful things that we think are happening. We've been transferred into another place where now we can see things clearly because we have the light, not only of the sun, but of the sun, S-O-N. We have the truth of Jesus Christ to now look through everything, the, having the right lenses to see everything because we've been transferred into this new kingdom. And we're in him. And we've been rescued and redeemed out of the darkness, and now we can walk in the light. We can now see and understand the truth I guess I want to pause here for a second and just ask and think in your own minds. If you remember the time before you came to know Jesus, where your mind and your heart were before. And once he saved you and gave you a new heart, how that changed your perspective. Because if you're a real believer, it changes your whole perspective. I know for, for some of us, it's more radical than others. Some of us grew, maybe grew up more in the church. For some of us, we were 180 degrees the other way, so it's a lot more radical. But I know I, from, my own, from my own life, I can tell you what a radical change it was to now, I can make sense out of everything. Wait, first, it gives, you, gives us these new desires and new affections, and now I can start making sense of something because I've got... I can measure a room properly. It's like having a ruler. I can now measure the room accurately because I have the right ruler. 
where before I you know, trying to use a rubber band or something that, that was just changing all the time, where I'm just saying, well, it's this, that. Now we've got something that we can see. We've got the truth of God's unchanging word to look at the world properly and correctly and truthfully. And that just opens up everything. Now we can understand in depth so much more because of being transferred into this kingdom of light and being taken out of the whole darkness. One of the, the really key aspects of this as well is this, this also goes back to the very beginning in establishing who Christ is, that first of all, Christ is our creator. Christ is our creator, he's the sustainer, and he's a re the redeemer. I mean, what we just read in this little chunk of passage, creator, sustainer, and redeemer. All of that, beginning to end, that's all Jesus Christ. In him, that's why we want to be in him, because he's the one that does everything. He made everything, he sustains everything, he redeems us and takes us out of, out of where we were in our sin. God's promises are fulfilled in Christ, and we're reconciled to God because Christ is fully God, and his sacrifice covers all sins. He, he's the fulfillment of all of these Jewish prophecies. Everything we read in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ, and now we're, rec and now we're reconciled because we're in him. The law has been fulfilled by Jesus' perfect obedience and his sacrifices. And, and this section, I, I hope you get some time to meditate on this this week, because this, this section really catalogs both the character and the accomplishments of Jesus. So let's walk through these verses and also look at a couple other passages that, that kind of showcase this and complement it as well. You know, he's the, the, the visible image of the invisible God that showed himself to mankind and walked among us. Jesus is the manifestation of God. 1 John 4.2, I think, puts it well when it says it this way. In 1 John 4.2, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay? Jesus isn't just an idea. Jesus isn't just a philosophy. There's a real historic Jesus that came to earth, that is chronicled not only in the Bible, but in many other secular uh, records as well. Jesus was a real person. And the Bible makes it really clear about the incarnation of Christ, because the incarnation of Christ is the essential doctrine of our faith. And it's not just something that we celebrate at Christmas time. I mean, this is central, obviously, to everything we, as believers. God incarnate into Jesus, the God-man. That's central to everything that we believe. So when he's reminding his people of that doctrine, he's reminding the people of the central truth of Christ's deity, and that he wasn't just a fleshly man that was a good teacher or a, or a smart guy or a, nice, or, or a nice religious fellow. He was God come in the flesh. That's powerful and that's life-changing when we understand that. This verse is telling us this is God, the fullness dwelling in this human being. We're never going to wrap our minds completely around it, folks. The fact that how does infinite God get into you know, the human body, that, that's just an amazing mystery to consider. But that is the truth that, that Scripture tells us. 
the incarnation. I mean, we, we love talking about the resurrection, but what a, what a miraculous thing to think about the incarnation. I mean, that, that is just a powerful concept to get because that's, that's deity. That's God. Here's the God-man. So the next phrase affirms this, but there's some, there's some cults, especially like the JWs, for instance, that misinterpret this word firstborn to somehow mean that Jesus was created. So here's, I, I want you guys to participate. You know, this is, hopefully we can sharpen each other's iron on this a little bit. So what do some of the other religions and cults say about Jesus Christ? Come on, we've all heard all kinds of different things about who this Jesus Christ is. I want to I hear what you've heard other people say about who this Jesus Christ is. Behind you. I'm sorry, what, what's that? The Muslims say that he was a prophet. Yeah, just a prophet. One of many prophets, yep. What else? I know you guys have encountered some, some other people maybe knocking on your door before, or plenty of things online. They'll say everything nice except he is God. They'll say he's a great teacher, a good man, a moral leader, but they will refuse to acknowledge him as God. Key, did everybody hear that? That's the one thing that they, all these other religions might say nice things about Jesus, but they're never going to admit that he's God, which we just read about, that he is deity in the flesh. I know Mormons uh, believe that he is the spiritual offspring of God. In fact, the... Um, brother of Lucifer as well. You guys hear that? that? That's actually, and it takes a while to get to that. It, it takes in conversation with Mormons because they usually don't like share that right up front. But they believe he's basically the spiritual brother of Lucifer. Just so you know that the LDS church, that is the official teaching of the LDS church. What else? What else have you heard? Anybody else want to? And, and Adam brought up some good points. Some, some, some of the religions or some even non-believers will say, yeah, well, I, believe, I, I can't deny the history that Jesus was a man and that we even, <laughs> that we, obviously he walked on the earth somehow because we even have calendars changed because of, the, <laughs> because of this guy lived. But they'll say he was, he was a good guy, he was a prophet, he was a teacher. They'll deny his deity. But here's the thing, you, you can't say that and say, because for anyone to make the claims that Jesus made, you know, <laughs> that, that person would either have to be a liar, a lunatic, or the son of God. Uh, I think that's what C.S. Lewis basically said. <laughs> you know, anybody that claims any of those things about Jesus being a good teacher, you can't be. You can't be a good teacher and, give, and teach people false things. That's not a good teacher. You can't be... Um, if you're saying that you're the son of God and you're not really deity, then you're a lunatic. Or as I think C.S. Lewis says, you're, it's, that's like saying I'm a poached egg. <laughs> and and that's, that's how crazy that is to say something like that. So you're either a liar or a lunatic. The only three options are Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he really was who he claimed to be, which is the son of God. So... We're going to get into, especially in the next couple of chapters, too, a little bit more about some of these other false teachings. But is there any, any other things that you guys have heard about other people saying, okay, in the, in the back, 
Christine, about who Jesus is? The adding to. So he's then essentially not sufficient as deity, right? The Catholic, okay. the seventh day. Mm -hmm. Jesus plus. Yeah, so it, there was Jesus, and he did this sacrifice and got, you know, he, he, was, he, was, he was crucified and killed, uh, but you still need to do other things. His sacrifice wasn't sufficient. And obviously that takes away from the deity of God, because the only appropriate sacrifice for all of our sins is, is the deity, Jesus Christ. So, um, really good, and I'm going to have to rush this along here a little bit, but that's what some of the other cults uh, say about Jesus Christ. And it is important for us to remember one of the most important questions that Jesus ever asked anybody in the Bible is, who do you say that I am? When he asked Peter that, who do you say that I am? And that's the question that each of us needs to answer ourselves. Who do, we, do we say he, he, that he is who he said he is? Or do we want to add or take away from wh what he said there? Paul said, you are the Christ. And that's the correct. And, it, and by the way, all, all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, record that. So Christians need to know um, how to combat this heresy about this firstborn. It's referring to Jesus' preeminence and stature or rank, not him being just a literal firstborn of the born. The rest of the verse makes it really perfectly clear. And because everything was created by him, uh, John 1, 3 makes it even more clear. I think I, I, I love this verse. John 1, 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he wasn't made or created because he's the creator. <laughs> There's nothing that can create the creator. There's got to be a star, star, starting point for all of this. There's no exception. He didn't make himself. And later on in verse 18, it even uses the word preeminent to make it really clear what he means by this. So why is understanding Jesus as creator vital for all Christians and churches? Why, why, is, it, why is it important that we get this, this fundamental concept about him being creator? Anybody want to take that real quick? What we were just talking about. Why, why, why it's important that we understand him as creator? Why, why is that important to our faith? There we go, in the back. It's essentially our truth. Yeah. We change that, we change everything. Yeah, if we change that, we change anything. He's saying, I'm God. <laughs> That's all about his deity. That's our, and if, if, we, if, we don't, if we stumble on that part, we're going we're gonna to lose it everywhere else. He's before all things. So this passage kind of emphasizes and details all the things he's created. I'm going to run through this a little bit just for the sake of time here. But the universe is all created by him. Not only did he create everything, but he sustains everything. Uh, verse 17 makes that plain. In him, all things hold together. The fact that our lives <laughs> are even still around right now, he is sustaining us. We need to remember that he is our sustainer. He holds it all together. So he's the creator, sustainer of all things, including our, the church, and he's our redeemer. Paul is making a big deal about the character and perfections and attributes of Christ so we can see his worthiness to do what we do every Sunday, which is to praise him, right? That's the whole purpose of this passage is to see his worthiness of praise. And the actual structure of verses 15 to 20, boy, this, I don't know if, if, if your Bibles all have that. Some, some Bibles, one of, the, one of the translations I was reading actually set it apart and make it look 
like it's a, it's a hymn. You know, it's kind of set apart with, in, in stanzas because this really is an anthem. Verses 15 through 20, uh, it's just a magnificent passage that really does sound like an anthem when you read it all. We see his perfection, his omnipotence, his stature, and the fact that he brings uh, peace and reconciliation. Um, so it's just, a, again, I just can't encourage you enough to meditate on, on that verse. So we'll go on to our next our, our verses here. It says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which had been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And that word minister, by the way, is the same word, diaconus, which means deacon or servant, uh, which is the same word that he used for Epaphras. So after this, after this revelation of all the glory of, of Christ and all the things that he is as, as creator, sustainer, redeemer, verse 21 shows us that we were all enemies at one time. We were all enemies before, before and we were cut off and separated from the love of God. And we hated his standards, and we wanted to live by our own rules. And we all understand that. Those of us, especially that um, maybe we're even farther away, but all of us, until we come to submission to Christ, we are all enemies of Christ. And now through the reconciliation of Christ, we can have peace with God. Not, and this is, this is a big thing, folks. It's not just a temporary truce. Okay, now that we accept Christ, then we got this temporary truce. But he's, we've now been completely welcomed into his kingdom forever. We've gone from being an enemy of Christ to now being an ally with the winning army. Complete, we, we've changed sides altogether. We're just not at truce with a, an opposing army. We're now an ally on the same side. I hope you get that concept. That's, that's a big thing to understand. We are, it, it, the change is fundamental. And because we're in Christ, we're seen as holy and righteous, and the covering of Christ makes us acceptable in God's presence. As long as we cling to the hope of the gospel and, and not our own works, as our sister Christina mentioned, not adding to this other things, as long as we just, our minds are fixed on the fact that our hope's in the gospel, not our own works, that's our firm foundation. Our feet are on the right rock. So the remaining section of this, and then we'll, we'll finish up here, uh, of this chapter, is a very important theme. But it starts with a statement that can be a little bit confusing. So I just want to make sure we all understand this going forward. But uh, in these last five verses here, starting in 24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul reminds the body again, that he's a minister, minister, that he's rejoicing in the midst of, the, of even his sufferings in prison. And 
the part that can be a little bit confusing for some is what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? That phrase, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Because if you don't read that in the full context of that, you can get a little bit confused. So you've got to ask the question, this is the question I put out there, what, what does it mean when that Christ's afflictions, does it mean, is Paul saying here that Christ's afflictions and suffering were not enough for us or inadequate? And how do you know that's the case? This is important. I want to hear from you. What, what is Paul saying here? Is, is he saying that, that Christ's sufferings weren't enough? I know this is a tough question. You don't want to get this one wrong. <laughs> is, he, is Paul saying here that Christ's sufferings are not enough? Yes? No? Complete in which way, and how do we know? This is a tough one. See, this is, even for believers, you've got to think this through in light of the context of everything that was just shared here. So we understand, okay, the question is, what did, what did God say? What did Jesus say at the cross? It is finished, okay? So is Paul saying something different than it is finished? No, he's not. He's not saying something different there. But the enemies of Christ are still not finished spewing their venom on Jesus and his followers. And that's what you got to get. So if you can get this part. So don't get confused by this. The, all of these people that hate Christ and hate Christ now, I mean, for them, torturing and killing Jesus wasn't enough. They had to go persecute his believers too. His church afterwards. They were going to continue to persecute the church. Today that's going on. The church is persecuted. So unbelievers, now and then, these unbelievers, they mock, they ridicule, and even use his name as a curse word. I gotta say, you know, there's no other religious figure whose name gets used as a curse word. When you see someone get mad, do they, or someone stubs their toe, they say, oh, Buddha, oh, Muhammad. No, Jesus Christ, even his name is used in vain as a curse word, or as, a, or as an expression of anger. There's no other religious figure that, that you ever hear that from. Why is that? Because these sufferings of Christ are still continuing to this day. And that's what Paul's pointing out. He's not saying Christ's sufferings were not adequate to take care of, of our sins. He's saying these sufferings are going to continue on because until he returns and every, every knee shall bow, there's still going to be persecution in the church and there's still going to be opposition out there. So when you think about that, remember, Paul bore the wounds from both floggings and stonings and shipwrecks and everything else for his faith. And he and, and the other disciples, all the other disciples except for John, were martyred for their faith. Were they martyred for their faith because Jesus' work wasn't enough? No, it's because these persecutions and sufferings are going to continue for the whole church. And that's all Paul is saying here. So don't read more into this. You've got to read it in the whole context and understand historically this is what has happened. This is what the world does. And Jesus warns all his followers that we'd face persecution for his name's sake. Uh, I won't go into all the verses on that. I, by the way, in your, in your notes, I put some other verses that kind of back up what, you're, what we're talking about here a little bit. But he did. I would, just want to make this clear. He did all that was necessary and sufficient to redeem his people for eternal glory. Okay? So I don't want you, if somebody asks you that question again, is Paul saying, you guys now know the answer. 
He's not saying that that wasn't sufficient. No, it was sufficient. That was enough. It's just that the unsaved are going to continue to afflict his followers. But in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And the mystery, at, to finish this up completely here, the mystery that Paul is called to proclaim, even to the Gentiles here, and to make it really clear, is that the hope of glory is Christ in us. That's the hope of glory. Christ in us. He's using all his energy to proclaim and encourage uh, others uh, over this entire world that it's Christ in us and that his kingdom is expanding still. We see all kinds of bad things and suffering and evil going on in the world. But don't we all know that there's new people being added to the kingdom every day? And we've got to remember that and keep that in perspective as well. The riches of Christ in us are imperishable and eternal, and that is the power of Christ. There's going to be more uh, in, in the following chapters in the next couple of weeks, chapter 2, again, about in Christ, the victory we have. So uh, we're, we're, we're running out of time. Any last comments before I, I close us in prayer? about the centrality of Christ and what we've been talking about today. Again, this is a great, and I, I just want to encourage you, please, please, if you're going to be back here again, read through chapter 2 so you can understand. You'll be ready to understand as, as this gets unpacked in the coming weeks. Prepare yourself for, for class by, by reading through the, the, the chapter before. A any last uh, comments, encouragements, questions before we close off here? Okay, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious inheritance that we've received. Lord, what a, what a blessing. Christ in us, the hope of glory. What a, Lord, an unfathomable gift. What a joy to receive. And what a joy to be able to walk in the truth and the power of your word, Lord. Strengthen us and empower us to walk in that, Lord, regardless of what's going on in circumstances. Remind us daily, hourly, by minute, Lord, that we're in you and that your power is sufficient to overcome any of these things that we're dealing with and that your love sustains us. And Lord, we give you thanks and glory for all that you've done for you being our creator and sustainer and redeemer. Lord, we thank you for your finished work and that, we, that it was finished and that we can rely on you for all things and that we can reject false doctrines and that we can come to you uh, in, in faith and trust and hope. And we thank you for, for being our hope, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.